If sharing food is diplomacy, then every cook is an ambassador for the food that they know best. And that may be one of the best ways to describe Buwei Yang Chao, author of How to Cook and Eat in Chinese, our cookbook focus for May. Not only does Dr. Chao bring us delectable dishes that any American cook can make at home, but she offers us a seat at her table to learn how to enjoy food the way that her family ate in China before their immigration to the United States. Today, we are digging into red and white cooking, a very unique feature of Chinese cooking, and unwrapping some of the stereotypes behind Chinese cuisine. Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hi, Lei. Hey, Kim. How are you? I'm doing really well. We're springing into spring and summer, although today it's pretty cold up here. Actually, it's we're rocking 58 right now. I have the heat on. I've got slippers on. That's that transitional time that we've got in spring in the Pacific Northwest. So, you know, what are you going to do? I know, right? Here, too, we had some really beautiful hot days. It's a little chilly today. I have a puppy on my lap, so she's keeping Aww. me warm, which is really nice. Best, yeah. best lap warmers ever. I For think. sure. Yeah. Yeah. So we're heading into part two of our discussion of how to cook and eat in Chinese. And right. I want to ask you right off the top, what are your honest first impressions that come to mind when you think about Chinese cooking? I think that the first thing that pops into my head is chop suey, which I know is a little bit more American Chinese than it is Chinese. So I think that's something that we probably can explore a little bit later. Absolutely. But certainly things like soy sauce and different types of ingredients, things that we don't typically use in American cooking. Mm -hmm. well, would you be surprised to hear that in her descriptions about how to cook and how to eat, Dr. Chow really patiently debunks many of those stereotypes that, oh, all Chinese dishes taste alike or that they use weird ingredients. Yeah, you know, honestly, after reading it, I was really surprised to see how many things were really very familiar to me. Right? Very familiar right. to me. Same, same. So off the top, you know, that the accusation that all, all Chinese dishes taste alike, well, they don't. As we've seen in our exploration of dumplings around the world, especially episode 48, China is not a homogenous country. There were initially four great traditions of Chinese cuisine, representing the North, East, South, and West, respectively. But this has expanded in modern times to eight great traditions. Gangdong, also known as Cantonese, Sichuan, Anhui, Shandong, Fujian, Jiangsu, Hunan, and Zhejiang. There are even more when you factor in that there are cuisines and influences from other territories or ethnic groups who influenced or who were influenced by China. And just as we would be pressed to date in barbecue or chowder or casseroles mm. as the official food of the United States, it's impossible to declare one dish or even one way of cooking to epitomize all of Chinese cooking. And this is going to become a little bit more clear when we start talking a little further about red and white cooking. 
I have to say, I think that is a really great comparison because I think as Americans, we can understand and appreciate the fact that barbecue in North Carolina is very different than barbecue in Texas. And casseroles, my gosh, right? <laughs> across, this, across the country, across a casserole country. is not the same. No, so I love that. I love that comparison. <laughs> We're even pressed here on the West Coast or even in the state of Washington. I Sometimes I, in foodie communities, I hear those, what dish really says Washington State? It, it could be salmon. It could be teriyaki. We have our own kind of straight tradition of teriyaki here. Or it could be coastal cuisine. It could be food that was inspired by First Nations people. It could be so much stuff. And if that's one state out of 50 plus our, our territories, how could you possibly define, oh, all American food tastes the same? You know, I just... Exactly. Yeah, yeah let's be a little more open-minded about it. As for ingredients, I admit that I had some initial trepidation about approaching some of the dishes in this book. I thought it would call for ingredients that I wouldn't exactly know how to source. What do I even need to make lotus buns? Okay. Um, I need flour, fresh yeast, vegetable oil, and water. Okay, actually, you already have that all at home. Okay, what about recipe 18.7 for variety stirs rice? Oh, I actually only need leftover white rice, raisins, chopped Virginia ham, walnuts, almonds, shrimp, scallions, lard, soy sauce, and salt. May not have all those in the house at the same time, but it actually sounds like a pretty awesome way to use up leftover ham around Easter. I really hate bean soups, so... This is a good plan for me. And celery cabbage sounds really incredibly exotic, but actually it's what we call Napa cabbage. So I'm thinking that we've got the conversation wrong when we start talking about creating authentic dishes with exact ingredients, when perhaps we'd be better focused on accuracy of flavor. So I wanted to read to you a little bit from the foreword by Hu Shi. And Hu Shi was a prominent Chinese philosopher, essayist, and diplomat. He is very well known for his role as a key figure in the new culture movement, which emerged in the early 20th century that sought to modernize Chinese society and culture. Long, long ago, Confucius made this observation. There is no one who does not eat and drink, but few there are who can appreciate taste. The essence of Chinese cooking lies in the traditional insistence that food must have taste or flavor, even though the materials used may be the most common and inexpensive kind of fish or vegetable. It is taste which gives joy in eating, and it is the art of the housewife, the cook, or the gourmet to work out the ways and means to give taste to food. The Chinese gourmet of the 8th century AD has left us this dictum. Every eating material can be made palatable, provided it is given the proper cooking time, hoi hoi, literally fire timing. Please note that this expert did not say that palatability depended on the use of the right kind of seasoning or flavoring materials. It is a proper fire timing, which really counts in all good cooking. Good cooking, says Mrs. Chow, consists in making the best use of the eating material. The cooking material should not only enhance the natural taste of the eating material and not take its place. In these words, our author has summed up the art and philosophy of Chinese cooking. All the 20 and 1 principal methods of cooking described in this book, from the slow and time-consuming red cooking and clear simmering, to the quick impressionistic stir-frying and plunging, are in reality gradations of fire timing, end quote. So I was really kind of intrigued by this idea of red cooking, because I wasn't really sure what that was. <laughs> and so, you know me, with my curiosities, I'll go down any rabbit hole I can find, right? And so one of the really interesting things that I learned from How to Cook and Eat in Chinese is about red cooking, 
where on one hand, the food earns a reddish brown color from the use of dark soy sauce and ingredients such as rock sugar, rice wine, and aromatic spices like star anise, cinnamon, and ginger. And these give the dishes a really kind of rich, savory flavor. I actually almost start thinking of like dishes like cassoulet, right? Where it's that same sense of long cooked, slow cooked. Most of the dishes that lend themselves to red cooking specifically are those which are stewed and can incorporate ingredients like pork shoulder, stew beef, mutton, chicken, duck, all those things that can handle like two to six hours of slow cooking. About red cooking, Dr. Chow specifically writes, quote, Red cooking is the typical family cooking since a lot of stuff boils down to very little. And it takes such a long time for most materials. Red cooked dishes cannot therefore usually be ordered a la carte in restaurants unless specifically ordered hours beforehand. For the housewife, however, it has the advantage common to slow cooking dishes that the leftovers keep well and can be eaten cold or warmed over, end quote. So to me, I feel like there's this whole style of cooking that I may never have experienced because this is not something that's going to be able to be served easily in a restaurant. I would have to call ahead a couple of days and be like, hey, I'll be there in two days and get, get it on the stove, right? It's just something like, so what, what's out there that I'm missing? On the other hand, white cooking emphasizes natural flavors of the ingredients, often includes things like clear broth, mushrooms, seafood, and delicate vegetables. These are the things that can't stand up so easily to slow cooking. Dishes that especially shine here involve stirring or stir-frying, which, remember, is a term effectively made up in this book to describe that cooking technique, steaming or blanching all ways that preserve the natural texture and color of the ingredients. The origins of red cooking can easily be traced back to ancient China, particularly the Ming Dynasty, that's about 1368 to 1644 in Western calendar terms, and Qing Dynasty, that's 1644 to 1912. During these periods, the techniques gained popularity in the imperial court and the upper classes. Remember, refrigeration was pretty rudimentary for a long time, so people devised all kinds of ingenious ways to either preserve their food or to disguise the taste of spoiling food, or both. I remembered when we talked about umami sauces like Worcestershire and fish sauce in episode 40, I read about how demand for fermented fish sauce and paste fell away in ancient China as soybeans gained value as a trade commodity. In fact, there is a reference in food scholarship to a fish-bean divide in East Asia, which the cuisines of China, Korea, and Japan rely primarily on fermented beans versus countries like Vietnam, Thailand, and Cambodia, mainly utilizing fermented fish for umami seasoning. And we would be remiss to not mention how the color red plays a significant role overall in Chinese culture. Red symbolizes good luck, happiness, and prosperity. And not only in Chinese cooking, but also in other celebratory foods such as American Juneteenth, something we're going to be talking about in our next episode. I really wanted to better understand the differences between red and white cooking, so I ended up cooking two variations of recipe 11.1 for stirred shelled shrimps to form one compare and contrast meal of A, white stirred shelled shrimps, and B, red stirred shelled shrimps. And a note about recipe names, and I know we kind of talked about this before, but <laughs> I love it. <laughs> what Dr. Chow does is she names her recipes primarily how you're going to cook it and then what you're cooking. So stirred shelled shrimps, literally you're going to be stir frying shrimps that have been shelled. <laughs> I'm not much more harder than that. 
In this case, white stirred and red stirred shrimps, both variations used the same basic ingredient base, and that was shrimp, cornstarch, sherry, fresh ginger, scallions, and both dishes were cooked in lard. The white stirred shelled shrimps rely on salt for seasoning, and of course, red stirred shelled shrimps utilize soy sauce. And given that I am very prone to adding soy sauce to virtually any Asian food to increase its salty umami flavor, I'm a sucker for that taste. I wasn't really expecting there to be really any kind of major difference between the cooked dishes. I just thought that they'd both kind of like taste like seasoned. And I was super wrong. In our show notes, you'll see photos of the assembled dishes, both raw and cooked. From the get-go, you can see that the red stirred shelled shrimps have a telltale reddish brown hue from the soy sauce, while the white stirred shelled shrimps remain white, pink. (laughs) It's a very pale looking dish, but there were discernible differences in taste as the completed dishes. The red shrimps had pronounced umami, and you definitely knew you were eating seafood. In fact, I had thoughts like oceanic in my mind, and I really started thinking that I'd maybe actually never tasted shrimp before. Like I, I was really kind of mm. like, whoa, this is a whole new kind of flavor profile to me. It was quite a surprise. And the white shrimps were sweeter, and that flavor contrasted really beautifully with the tang of the fresh ginger and the scallions in the dish. Mm. They were virtually identical dishes, but they also managed to somehow be completely different. And even my husband noticed that they kind of tasted different. We had, we put them on two sides of one plate. <laughs> Obviously, from a color standpoint, they were different, but the flavors were different as well. This is a form of cooking that really speaks to the gourmand inside of me who's always hungry. I love it when a dish can put an ingredient on a pedestal and make it shine, where everything highlights something in the dish. And that definitely happened for me with the white shrimps and the red shrimps. For a meal, I also cooked up some cowboy's rice and see episode 51 to find out why that's so important (laughs) to me. And I just cooked up a plain rice because that's something that I believe Dr. Chow would have done to serve with this meal. You each have your individual bowl of rice and then you communally share the main dish, although they're not really meant to be separate dishes per se. She's got a lot of really fun things to say about how you share food. And I was truly delighted to discover that recipe 14.2a for stirred cabbage is effectively the exact same stirred cabbage that I really like cooking and eating, even outside the context of Chinese food. It's a dish that I remember from my childhood. It's easy to make. You just slice up some cabbage and you stir fry it. And it was like, it's the same recipe. This dish calls just for, quote, new American cabbage. I translated basically as green cabbage, lard, salt, and water. And I cut my cabbage as recommended into wide strips. It was such a familiar dish, but it felt new again. I felt like I was rediscovering an old friend. I'd like to conclude with this sentiment from Pearl S. Buck's preface in How to Cook and Eat in Chinese. Quote, as for Mrs. Chow, I would like to nominate her for the Nobel Peace Prize. For what better road to universal peace is there than to gather around the table where new and delicious dishes are set forth? Dishes which... Though yet untasted by us, we are destined to enjoy and love. What better road to friendship upon which alone the peace can stand? I consider this cookbook a contribution to international understanding. We have known abstractly that the Chinese people is one of the oldest and most civilized on earth, but this book proves it. Only the profoundly civilized can feed upon such food. I love that. And I love the fact that 
we have Pearl S. Buck telling us that the food in this cookbook creates peace. And it does. I think that the fact that you talked about the shrimp, you talked about the cabbage, those are both things that are very familiar to us. And I think that what Mrs. Chow did, Bu Wei, what she did was she put these dishes that are accessible and that we can make in our own kitchens and said, look, this is what we eat. You eat similar foods. Mm -hmm. We're not that different. No, we really aren't. And that was, as I said, like I was, I ended up at one point scanning through trying to stump myself with one of these recipes. And while there are th some things that were perhaps a cause for confusion about ingredients, like I mentioned before, the celery cabbage, like what is celery cabbage? Oh, it's Napa cabbage. I've seen that hundreds yeah. of times. Maybe not my small local grocery store might not always have that on the shelf. Five minutes more, I can go to a larger grocery store and find it. It, there never was this moment for me where it was, oh, I can never make that dish because it's impossible for me to find the item that goes into it. She accounted for that because she's living here in the States. She knows what we've got available in our grocery stores. Right. She's not asking us to do anything extraordinary or bizarre, spend even hours outside of red cooking <laughs> to, to make the dish. Right. It's everything is written so simply and thoughtfully and politely, but not overly polite. It just It's like the other cookbooks that we've been discovering this season, conversational in a way, between herself and her family who have helped with the editing and the eating and the cooking, but then to the reader as well. And she yeah. really breaks down those barriers and those stereotypes. And she makes yeah. a point actually early on about how there can be the perception that Chinese food is unhealthy and actually, it's not unhealthy. It's the way that it, food is made and eaten. It, it's not massive amounts. You know, pile your plate high with food and then eat it by yourself. You're sharing with everybody else. Your, your rice right. is your own. And beyond that, everything else is communal. And yeah. that leads to a healthy diet. Exactly. I'm trying to remember if it was in the cookbook itself or if it was in her autobiography that she talks about coming to America and they were invited to this buffet. And for her, it was this amazing thing. And she started to eat the way that they would typically eat, grabbing a little bit of everything. <laughs> and by the time she got to the end of the buffet, she was like, oh my God, I can't eat all of yeah. this. Yeah. So translating the way that they eat onto the way that we present food here in the States was a difficult thing for her to navigate at first. Mm. But I love the fact, and I think that we talked about this in the first episode of How to Cook and Eat in Chinese, about that communal, how you do go into each dish. And like you said, the rice, the bowl of rice is your own. Mm -hmm. That isn't something that is shared, but everything else is shared. And yeah. I did write an article about that in the As We Eat journal that talked about that when I was talking to a friend well, that's how we eat. We present our stuff on the table as a family style. I'm like, but that's not how we eat. We individually put a serving on our plate and we eat individually. And that isn't something that they did. It's very communal. And I love that. The first part of the book is how to cook in Chinese. The second part is how to eat in Chinese. Mm -hmm. And she talks about that so eloquently and 
explains what it means to eat in Chinese so well that it's just such an interesting cookbook. I just, I can't, I cannot, absolutely cannot <laughs> recommend it enough to people. It's such a beautiful book. It is. It really is. I've really enjoyed both reading and cooking from this book. We've talked a lot about how important it is sometimes to read cookbooks as literature. That even if you're yes. not making the dishes, in this case, like the Julia Child and Co., Mastering the Art of French Cooking, they're clear. The directions are actually pretty, pretty basic. They're basic, but you get the dish out of it. She doesn't right. layer in a whole lot of fancy technique. And although there are illustrations for things that she wants you to do that are maybe different from a, a cutting a vegetable, for example, there's a whole description and diagram for a way of cutting vegetables that I'm actually kind of curious to try that gives an irregular shape to the vegetable, not something that we see a lot in Western cooking. Usually the French style is a sort of uniformity that every bit of onion looks exactly the same, whereas in Chinese cooking you might run into more of an oblong, irregularly cut shape because the flavor comes through in a different way when you cut like that. There's a lot to learn here to mm. expand my repertoire of cooking, just flat out, just trying new things in cooking, but then really exploring and kind of getting to that accuracy of flavor, not authenticity, but accuracy of like, oh, this is what this eggplant dish that is meant to highlight the eggplant with a little umami, with a little bit of ginger. This is tasting that vegetable and not just having it be this sort of weird mushy component in a greater dish where it doesn't really serve a purpose other than bulk. No, this was a great recommendation, Leah. I really appreciate it because I had not heard of this book before, but we made our plans and I love it. It's going to be a cherished cookbook now. Yeah, I do too. And using it as a piece of literature, especially the way that it's been written and the yeah. fact that you had those three different viewpoints because you get to see each of their individual personalities. <laughs> and I think that's just really a brilliant way to present a book. Oh, I love it. Yeah. yeah. I feel like all books, all cookbooks from you. <laughs> should be cooked by or cooked and read by family members. Can't imagine doing it. It just they really added to the experience of it. I really appreciate it. It did. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned the importance of the color red. And yeah. our next adventure into cookbooks is into a really actually a very brand new cookbook. It is. Yeah. We have already teased where we're visiting a cultural food phenomenon centered around a new national holiday into which chefs are bringing fresh perspectives. And for this, I chose Watermelon and Redbirds by Nicole Taylor. And I actually wanted to read it last year when we were talking about Juneteenth, but it was a brand new book and I didn't get my copy in time. Since then, I've had the pleasure to look through it and read it. And I realized that she was trying to accomplish something really special and unique, which is modernizing foods that are eaten in tradition, that foods are celebratory, but kind of getting back to a root of what the food is from, what it's about, why it's eaten, and not necessarily relying on things being mass-produced. She's got a really interesting perspective of how to mm. re-examine and revisit these dishes. So that is what you have to look forward to in our next episode. Yes, um, I'm, I am so excited about this book, another beautiful book. I'm imagining you've got something in mind already, like for this one. I do. I'm very excited about the recipe that I'm going to be making for that. Oh, I can't wait to hear about it. <laughs> <laughs>
So there were a couple of episodes of As We Eat that I mentioned today that I want to make sure folks can get up paper and pen, make a note. We'll also, of course, include links in our show notes. But they were episode 40, Sailing the Umami Seas, Fishy Origins of an Ancient Recipe, Proper Pronunciation of a Pantry Staple, which I very nearly flubbed, and our favorite Bloody Marys. I also mentioned episode 48, Dumplings Around the World, Pan-Asian Dumplings from Chinese Medicine to Dim Sum, and you might as well listen to episode 49, Dumplings Around the World, European Dumplings from Saints to Holy Justice in Just One Bite, and episode 50, Dumplings Around the World, The Great American Dumpling Showdown, because the trio of episodes actually is a lot of fun. And finally, it is a lot of fun. It is. And finally, episode 51, From Temple to Table, How Rice Built Communities Around the World. For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com, follow us on Instagram at asweeat, and please join our family recipes, traditions, and food lore community on Facebook. And so you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you could spare a couple of minutes to rate and review the podcast on either Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or Spotify, we would be so appreciative. We really would love to continue to build our As We Eat family and community. We also publish the As We Eat journal on Substack, and we'd be so honored if you would support us by becoming a subscriber. We take tasty side trips through vintage recipes, community cookbooks, discoveries and travel stops there are three subscription tiers we're sure you'll find one that's perfect for you at asweeat.substack.com you've been listening to the as we eat podcast part of our curiosity driven project serving up how food connects defines and inspires by blending a little bit of research with a dash of humor and a whole lot of passion and some soy sauce and some soy sauce over the dark and <laughs> to add that part i love that Ba-da-da-ba-ba-ba-da-ba-ba-da-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-